Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back. It's part two of our multi-part exploration of black holes. Because you know what? This year, Robert went to the World Science Festival in New York and came back with black hole fever. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great talk that really opened my eyes a little more to some of the finer details of, uh, of black holes. And you, I, you mean the Brian Greene talk with the guests? Yeah, Darkness Made Visible. Uh, wonderful talk. It's available online. We'll include a, a link to that on the landing page for this episode. Certainly inspired us to, to really give black holes a proper shake on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff to talk about and the fact that they're just one of the most interesting objects in the entire universe. If yeah. not, the, they're probably, I would say, maybe the most interesting non living thing in the universe. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say that because we're pretty interesting. Ultimately, humans are. Um, I do want to remind everyone, if you did not listen to the previous episode on black holes, you do want to go back and listen to it because this is this is not one of those where you can kind of take part one and part two in any order. You really need to hit the first episode. I mean, you could if you really wanted, but we're going to be referring back to the groundwork we laid in the previous yeah. episode. And in the previous episode, we talked a lot about the development of black holes uh, sort of as the history of an idea, something that was unlike the stars in the sky. You know, the stars in the sky we first observed and we could see them. And then by making observations about them, we were able to come up with theories to explain them. Black holes weren't like that. It went the other way around. Black holes existed in theory long before anybody accepted that they existed in reality. And long after they existed in theory, many scientists ardently opposed the idea that black holes could exist in nature. Yeah, it's the idea that that, uh, these various individuals said, well, if X, Y, and Z are true, then this thing – might exist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and that thing is the black hole. But of course, you know, lots of people, when a thing sounds outlandish, even if your best theories tell you it might be possible, people want to find a way to say, no, that just sounds unintuitive. It couldn't be real. It doesn't fit my picture of how the universe works. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, it, maybe that's a thought experiment, but uh, I doubt we'll actually find something like this when we start uh, looking out into the cosmos with better uh, observational technology. You know, it's often said that Albert Einstein did some of his worst work ever, like the worst science of his entire career was him trying to write papers to prove that black holes didn't exist in reality. It just didn't seem right to him, Hmm. even though his general relativity became the basis of our modern theory of black holes. Uh, But so anyway, yeah, so how did – today we want to explore making the darkness flesh, making the black hole into a thing that is real in existence in the universe and we can detect it. So I think first we want to tell the story of sort of like bridging the gap between the the black holes of general relativity theory and the actual observations of them and then talk a little bit about what's it like to detect black holes and how we might do it. And we do have to, to stress that in today's world, uh, black holes are pretty much an established reality. You, you talk to experts and they say yes without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I don't know if it's the case that every single expert would say without a shadow of a doubt. But yeah, they're, they're generally accepted as a fact of reality. Yes. You know, we've reached the point where black holes exist. And they're completely non-politicized. <laughs> That's the other great <laughs> Isn't part. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I love a scientific controversy that doesn't ever have a political angle. Yeah, it's the uh, black holes are, are, are thus far. They, they've remained pretty safe. Well, maybe we can muck it up today. Maybe <laughs> no, let's no, let's no, get no, people no. taking tribal sides on it. <laughs> 
Okay, so the story of how black holes went from this theoretical anomaly to a thing known to exist in the world, uh, it's a long, complicated story. So we definitely can't explore all of it. But I just want to mention a few highlights. And one of the first ones is Sirius B. Now, Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky from Earth, often known as the dog star because it's part of the Canis Major constellation, the great dog constellation. Side note, I didn't know this until I was reading this the other day. Do you know the origin of the the term dog days of summer doesn't actually have anything to do with the behavior of dogs? Oh, really? I I always thought it came from a Don Henley song. (laughs) Wait, what? Oh, no, that's the boys of summer. Sorry. (laughs) After the dog days of summer have gone? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, I groove so hard whenever that song comes on the radio. It's, it's a great, it's a great track. I it, love it. It's yacht rock that touches my heart. Yeah, yeah. So the the term "dog days of summer" actually refers to the period of Sirius, the the star in the Canis Major constellation, rising roughly in conjunction with the sun, which happens in July through August in the northern hemisphere. And so this is also the hottest time of the summer. And so it came to be associated with okay, so Sirius is coming up with the sun in the morning. And that means it's going to be real hot out. But uh, back in the 1800s, it had been observed that the extremely bright star we now call Sirius A behaved oddly. Its motion was not – it was not smooth. It was kind of wobbly as if it were being destabilized and tugged on by an invisible hand. And it turned out that Sirius A actually had a very dim companion star. It was a binary star system, and the companion was what we now call Sirius B. But it was a very strange type of companion because based on the motion of the two bodies and the light they produced, astrophysicists could calculate that the companion of Sirius at the same time was somewhere around the mass of our sun and yet was barely larger than the size of planet Earth and burning extremely hot, much hotter than the sun. So Sirius B turned out to be an early example of what would later be called a white dwarf, a tiny, hot, massive star that proved matter could be compressed to pressures previously thought absolutely impossible. Uh, In the words of Arthur Eddington, quote, a ton, and he's talking about the, the material making up the star, a ton of this material would be a little nugget that you could put in a matchbox. Mm-hmm. So imagine something matchbox size, but that weighs a ton. And so for many, including Eddington, uh, the very concept of this density was so absurd that it should just basically cause us to dismiss the observations out of hand, dismiss the idea of a white dwarf. It's absurd. But Reality is stranger than our imagination. White dwarfs came to be accepted as a feature of the universe and a part of stellar evolution, especially after quantum mechanics eventually came along to explain how matter could be compressed to such an unbelievable density. Uh, It basically has to do with packing atomic nuclei tighter and tighter, and you can actually do this to some extent because most of an atom is empty space. There's a good explanation of this actually in a book that's one of our sources on this episode, uh, Black Hole by Marsha Bartusiak which I thought I should mention again, uh, which is a good good book if you want to go in more depth than we're going into here. But so with Sirius B, you've got these white dwarves. You've got these objects that are observed to be tiny and very hot and very bright and very massive. And so what would be the limits on what a star like that could be like? Uh, In 1930, the young Indian astrophysicist Subramanian Chandrasekhar calculated that there was an upper limit 
to the mass of a white dwarf. White dwarfs could vary in size, but somewhere around 1.4 solar masses. If a white dwarf is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun, something happens. This is now known as the Chandrasekhar limit. And at around this mass, the force of gravity, Chandrasekhar calculated, appears to become more powerful than the force that's known as the electron degeneracy pressure. And what that is, is it just causes atoms to push against one another and resist compression. So why can't you keep compressing it down more and more? There's this electron degeneracy pressure uh, pushing back. But at a certain point, Gravity, at least on paper, appears to completely overwhelm this degeneracy pressure and just crush everything down. So any clump of white dwarf stellar matter more massive than this could not maintain the white dwarf density at a stable pressure. Given the laws of general relativity, past this point, a star's density would just not scale up regularly but would collapse and it would collapse toward infinity. When you think about that, like, try to imagine you're in Chandrasekhar's position, infinite density. What does it mean to collapse to infinite density? You'd almost be tempted to think, okay, well, I made a mistake. Yeah. It's like it's like suddenly everything's reduced to zero and you know that the equation must be flawed. Yeah, it's like you, you've hit a divide by zero error yeah. or something. You, you, you know that you must have done something wrong. Uh, it was difficult to believe that something like this could be possible in reality. How could a real physical object collapse toward a point of infinite density? Uh, though this is what the math appeared to show. But Chandrasekhar did not actually argue about what physically happened to the white dwarf past the limit that he had established only that the limit of stability at about 1.4 solar masses existed. And Chandrasekhar spent years arguing against the grain of scholarship on this point. Uh, there's a famous story about how when he presented his findings at a meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society of London in 1935, our old friend Arthur Eddington, uh, he supposedly exclaimed, there should be a law of nature to prevent a star from behaving in this absurd way. <laughs> That's some wicked cantankerousness. <laughs> <laughs> Just like yelling at the laws of physics. <laughs> Raging at physics. Yeah. Uh, but, but no, I mean, so that kind of attitude from Eddington actually kept this idea down for a long time, even though we would eventually find out that Chandrasekhar was on the right side of this argument. And the prolific Soviet physicist Lev Landau also made a similar calculation around this point, and he also arrived at the conclusion that a heavy enough star could collapse to what appears to be a point, but he said, oh, that can't be quite right. So he ignored this result and instead concluded that the core of a star like this, uh, that at the core of a star like this, matter sort of begins to ignore the laws of physics and becomes, quote, one gigantic nucleus. Now, Chandrasekhar was eventually recognized for being in the right on this question. He received the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on stellar evolution, and he got that in 1983. Now, also in the 1930s, a parallel idea to the idea of the black hole emerges, and that is the idea of a neutron star. Now, a neutron star is another form that stellar collapse can take, in which you've got protons and electrons that form the core of a star and they get compressed together with such force that they combine and form neutrons, which have mass but no electric charge. And a neutron star is not as uh, reality warping as a black hole, but it is an unbelievably exotic type of object composed of matter so dense that it's been compared to an atomic nucleus the size of a city, Ooh, wow. if you can picture that. Uh, can you picture that? Of course you can't. <laughs> Nobody can. But just just try. I can pick. 
picture, uh, an illustration that was presented of this. That's that's the best I can do. Uh huh. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that matter already looks solid enough to us, right? Yeah. I mean, you take a rock or something like that. You're like, this looks really, really solid, but most of it is empty space. Most of it is just the space between the atomic nuclei and the electrons orbiting them and the other atomic nuclei that they're bonded with. Um, I mean, the, the molecules that make that very solid-seeming object are mostly empty space. And there's a lot of space you can press things further and further into if you really must. You may not be able to get blood from a stone, but there's a lot of empty space in there. If empty space is what <laughs> you you're get, after, it's yeah, there. You can get space from a stone. So just to show how much things can be compressed, it's often said that like a square centimeter of a neutron star material might weigh more than a billion tons. Oh, wow. Uh, so in the late 1930s, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's famous for working on uh, the uh, the Manhattan Project among many things, Oppenheimer and some students of his published work tending in the same direction as Chandrasekhar. Oppenheimer and uh, George Volkoff did work on the emerging idea of neutron stars, which we were just talking about, and found that neutron stars, like white dwarves, had an upper limit of mass, after which something very strange seems to happen to them. You've got this upper limit, and if they they have more mass than this limit, there's some kind of collapse. Something Something goes wrong with the physics. Uh, Oppenheimer also published a paper on stellar evolution with Hartland Snyder in which they determined that late-stage stellar remnants of stars past a certain mass would seem to enter this state of permanent, infinite collapse. The matter within them would exist in this perpetual freefall toward a point of infinite density, the singularity. And that is a, that is a mind-boggling uh, concept to toy around with there. Falling forever. Yeah. The never-ending pit, essentially. Uh, which was, was something like as a kid, you, or at least when I was a kid, that's what we played instead of the floor is lava. We said the floor is a never-ending pit. Oh, that's Probably, worse than lava. Yeah. I think it's because we saw it uh, on like He-Man cartoons or something. I mm-hmm. feel like, it, it, isn't that what's underneath Castle Grayskull, a never-ending pit? I don't remember. It well, is in my mind. Well, I don't then know. what's Castle Grayskull built on? Uh, it's built over a never-ending Oh, pit. I see. It's got like struts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess they had to cap that thing, you know, <laughs> up. They're like, ooh, don't, people are going to fall into that. Let's put a castle on top of it. <laughs> so I'm start- playing fast and oh. loose with Masters of the Universe uh, um, uh, mythos here, by the way. I apologize for just trying to move us along. I think <laughs> we should dwell. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> okay. okay. Don't ever let me be too square, okay? <laughs> uh, so starting in the 1950s and 60s, Both experimental and theoretical work really seems to accelerate in the direction of indicating the reality of neutron stars and black holes, these these really exotic collapsed star remnant objects. And theoretical models uh, are affirmed over and over and they appear increasingly sound while new astronomical observations really seem to make us think, wow, yeah, there could be black holes out there. I I think some of the skepticism could be unfounded. Like in the 1960s, You had scientists identifying quasars, which are these distant high-energy objects, possibly young galaxies with black holes at the center of them, emitting trillions of times the energy of a sun. And you had pulsars, which are spinning objects emitting a repeating pattern of radio bursts. And around the same time, astronomers identified sources of X-rays and gamma rays from all over the celestial map. And these signals really strongly pointed to the physical reality of collapsed stars like neutron stars and black holes. 
And now we know that actually pretty much every mature galaxy in the universe that we know of seems to have a supermassive black hole at its center. It may be that black holes are necessary for the formation of galaxies, and galaxies are where things like us live. The black hole, the life giver. (laughs) Yeah, we're rebranding the black hole today. Yeah. So speaking of uh, supermassive black holes, I I do want to just touch in once more on the the three – forms of black holes that we tend to discuss. Okay, so we've mainly been talking about stellar black holes, right? Right. The idea of a collapsed star. Yeah, these would be as massive as as 20 of our suns, uh, fit inside a one-mile radius sphere. Uh, These would be the remnants of very massive stars that have run through their energy reserves. They go supernova, and then they collapse upon themselves. And they're thought to be the most common type of black holes. And there are uh, likely dozens within our own Milky Way galaxy. And then there are the primordial black holes. These uh, I touched on in the first episode. They're the size of an atom. They have the mass of a mountain. So these are uh, hypothetical, and they probably formed soon after the Big Bang. Okay. And then, of course, there are the the, the big ones, the supermassive black holes. They likely exist at the center of most galaxies. Our own galaxy boasts Sagittarius A, and it has a mass equal to about 4 million suns. And uh, these black holes formed with their respective galaxies – uh, and are proportional in size. And again, these these are these are a part of our universe. Uh, you know, as much as we we tend to sort of fall into the trap of thinking of black holes as you know cosmic Lovecraftian evil consumers, mm. uh, they are they are just a part of the the life cycle of of stars. They are part of the the general physical reality of the universe. Yeah, they're not reapers from another dimension. Right. They're the life givers. Well, <laughs> let's not go too far. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get into the science of detecting black holes. All right. We're back. So I want to tell you a story about Cygnus X-1. Okay. Let's have it. So way back in the 1960s, in the swinging 60s, the astronomers out there were making use of a new class of tools to study distant regions of the sky. And these were space-based X-ray detectors. They were attached to orbital rockets and uh, artificial satellites. And these instruments looked for X-ray signals that astronomers and astrophysicists thought they might uh, find emanating from all kinds of celestial sources, from, say, the surface of the moon, you know, is the moon shooting X-rays, to distant star systems and nebulae. And one strong source of X-ray radiation detected by rockets in the 1960s was a point in the constellation Scorpius. And the source of the radiation came to be known as SCO-X1 or SCO-X1. I don't know if you say it like SCO. That makes it sound kind of scummy. But it was a truly remarkable find because this radiation source was about 9,000 light years from our solar system. And its X-ray output was millions of times stronger than that of normal sun-like stars. And this massive energy output came, we discovered, from a neutron star in a binary system. And since then, other similar sources have been discovered. These X-rays are generated when matter from the – so you got a binary system. you got like a neutron star or a black hole and then some other kind of object like a star. Yeah, they're dancing with each yeah, other. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing the, the polka out there in space. Mm-hmm. And the X-rays are generated when matter from the surface of the more normal star gets sucked violently into the gravitational field and onto the surface of the neutron star. That's what's going on in the case of SCOX1. 
And during so so this uh, this gets sucked in, the matter gets heated up a lot, and X-rays get blasted out into space. But during these surveys of the 1960s, one X-ray source in the sky was not like the others. In 1964, we started to get a clear picture of the radiation output of one source in the Cygnus constellation, and this source came to be known as Cygnus X1. And unlike the X-ray sources that emitted like regular pulses, you know, sometimes that would happen. You beep, beep, beep. Cygnus X1 seemed to be releasing unbelievably powerful irregular bursts of this deadly high-frequency radiation. And sometimes these irregular bursts were incredibly short, like on the scale of millionths of a second. And so at a meeting in March 1971, the Italian astrophysicist Riccardi Giacconi speculated that the source of the X1 signal might be a real black hole, the first black hole apparently observed in space. And later analysis did seem to bear out this hypothesis. The Cygnus X1 system seems to consist of a blue giant star orbiting with a much smaller object that we can't see. And by observing the size of the companion star, the blue giant known as HDE226868, and the rate of its orbit, it completes an orbit in less than six Earth days, uh, in the size of that orbit, astronomers began to get a picture of this unseen orbital center. It appears to be invisible, tiny, and heavy. Current estimates of its mass are at about 14.8 of our suns. Ooh. And the radiation coming from this source is emitted as this apparent black hole sucks matter off of the orbiting star, like we were just talking about with the neutron star. It sucks gas or matter off of that star, and the matter swirls down into the gravity pit of this object, heating up as it does, and eventually it heats to the point that it gives off X-rays. Now, of course, once that gas falls past the event horizon, presumably nothing more is emitted. It's stuck inside. But you've got – so you've got these observations. It's massive. It's tiny. It's invisible and it shoots radiation out into space as it appears to suck matter from neighboring bodies. Really, really seems like a black hole. But was it proof? Uh, this was actually famously the subject of a bet between physicist Stephen Hawking, uh, who did plenty of his own important work on black holes, and Kip Thorne in 1974. Real quick, Kip Thorne, by the way, uh, not only physicist, but executive producer of the 2014 film Interstellar. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that was probably the, the best black hole movie I've seen. Yeah, and that's why. <laughs> yeah, right. So he, he tried to get them to, like, get the science right. Yes, yeah. To say, be accurate, make it look like a black hole would really look. Let's do some math. Yeah, and they, they did the math, and that's, a, that's, that, that's something that most people tend to to praise Interstellar for as being the, the best depiction of a black hole in uh, at least cinematic science fiction. Well, as I've said on the show before, my favorite thing about it is how it actually deals with the time dilation effects of relativity. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, there's a lot to like about Interstellar. But coming back to that bet, I'm sure you've heard about this bet before. This is a famous bet in, mm -hmm. in the history of physics, astrophysics. So Thorne and Hawking had this bet. Uh, Hawking was the pessimist. Thorne was the optimist. Well, I guess depending on what you think, you know. Regarding the nature th of black holes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thorne bet that Cygnus X1 would turn out to be a black hole. Hawking bet that it would not turn out to be a black hole. And Hawking was wrong. By 1990, Hawking admitted that the evidence for X1's black hole status was so strong that he had to concede the bet. So we live in a world now where astronomers and astrophysicists are almost totally convinced that black holes exist. You can fly out into space in theory and you could fly right into them. But – 
they nevertheless remain tricky from an observational standpoint. So I think now for the rest of the episode, we should try to explain some of the ways that we can use to try to detect black holes in space. Yeah, a thing that by its very definition uh, cannot be seen, cannot be seen directly of what are the ways in which we can observe their presence. Right, because one of the very things that makes a black hole unique is that it neither emits nor reflects detectable light of its own. So how would we ever know if it one exists? Well, there are lots of indirect ways of detecting them. And of course, even though it doesn't emit light of its own, that doesn't mean it's necessarily dark because as we explained in the last episode, there's stuff going on around it. Yes. And in fact, we, we just touched on one example of this, uh, we, uh, of the idea of stuff falling into the black hole, stuff being material being sucked into it. Yeah, so black holes themselves are dark. But from our perspective, the region around the black hole can be anything but. So imagine there's this region of space where we observe extremely hot, high-energy radiation. you got X-rays spewing out all over the place. What's going on there? Well, a good chance is you've got a black hole with matter falling into it. The matter gets heated up to hundreds of millions of degrees and produces all these kinds of powerful radiation that are visible from Earth until it passes that threshold, however, and falls into the black hole after which it emits nothing. To revisit what we uh, – w- the example I brought up in the last episode, I think it's kind of like you've got a haunted house yeah. and you've got like a car that takes people around the haunted house and the car is soundproof so you can't hear people screams from inside the car. But as the tourists line up to get into the car, you will probably hear them doing all kinds of things as they're like sort of loading in. And the fact that you can observe often all of this violence and radiation around a black hole came up in that Darkness Visible presentation, right? Yeah, it was pointed out that uh, that despite their inherent darkness, black holes are among the brightest objects in the cosmos, often uh, pinpointed as points of extreme brightness in a relatively compact region of space. And this is due to all the the, the material and light surging in and orbiting around the objects within horizon, uh, the point, again, at which even light cannot escape. Right. This is probably a terrible, a terrible comparison. But to come back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, it's oh, like oh, again, yeah, there are all these, uh, <laughs> all these missing teenagers and all of these looted graveyards, uh, and then we have this one area here. Clear. Uh, mm. Look at all this activity around the house. That's how we have some idea about what's going on inside it. Right. Maybe you can't get a warrant to go inside the house, mm-hmm. but you can see there's a ruckus going on or in the general vicinity. Right, and that's what we're looking at here: the black hole ruckus. But that's not the only way that we can uh, we, we can detect the presence of a black hole. No, there are lots of other really interesting ways. So here's another one. Imagine you are to look at a place in the galaxy where visible objects are acting weird. Planets or stars travel in these repeating loops as if in orbit around something, but we can't see what that thing is for them to be in orbit around. Or if we can see it, maybe it's like they're orbiting an invisible star. Or we can see something very bright that they're orbiting, and the way that they're orbiting it indicates that this thing they're orbiting might be both very, very small and very, very massive. It's essentially the invisible man scenario. Yeah. Like you can see the hat, but there's no person there. Well, something must be holding up the hat. Yeah, something's holding up the hat and the umbrella. So, uh, for example, what do we see when we look closely at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy? Uh, We mentioned this Darkness Visible presentation at the World Science Festival this year. 
Uh, so that presentation featured, among others, the UCLA astronomer Andrea Gaze, who has spent her career examining exactly this question, what's going on at the center of the galaxy? Uh, now, of course, we mentioned in the previous episode and earlier today that re- researchers have come to believe that there is a supermassive black hole at the center of most or all mature galaxies, and our galaxy is no different. At the center of our galaxy, there's an object called Sagittarius A, which is believed to be a black hole about 4.3 million times the mass of our sun. Though Gaze actually says that this is on the low end of supermassive black holes, which can be up to a billion times the mass of our sun. Wow. Though I want I want to be impressed by that, but I'm running into like the scale problem, right? Where yeah. somebody says like, hey, Robert, uh, I want to give you uh, $100 billion or I want to give you – Five hundred billion dollars. Yeah, you end it's up in dealing like, with just scales. They might as well be the same number because they're just so beyond my ability to, to, you know, to fit them within the confines of my own life. Yeah, what does that ma- what does that difference even matter? Yeah, what am I supposed to do with that information? Yeah. Uh, so even though I recognize that that is a big difference, and that that's it should be really impressive. I can't actually picture it, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of stuck there. You often run into this with some of the most impressive stuff in in astronomy. It's like you want to be accurately appreciative, but you can't visualize the scale. Yeah, because the numbers just be- become meaningless to most minds after a point. But anyway, back to – so Sagittarius A, this thing that we believe to be a super supermassive black hole. How How would you detect if it really were a supermassive black hole? And just to note, we keep calling it Sagittarius A, but technically the object believed to be the black hole is Sagittarius A with a little asterisk. They call that Sagittarius A star, while Sagittarius A as a whole is this more complex source of radio signals, including the object we're talking about. So technically it's Sagittarius A star, but I think we will keep calling it Sagittarius A because when you're also talking about stars, saying A star over and over can be confusing. So the main method that Gaze talks about is to demonstrate that a mass is within its uh, Schwarzschild radius. We talked about the Schwarzschild sphere in the last episode. And in simple terms, what you're looking for is big mass, small volume. We know that any mass contained within the volume of its Schwarzschild radius will inevitably collapse into a black hole. Nothing can stop it. At this scale, gravity always wins. And if you can show this, if you can show that an object is of a mass that's within the volume of its Schwarzschild radius, you've effectively demonstrated that it must be a black hole. So to see what's happening at the center of our galaxy, we can look toward the constellation Sagittarius, and if you have the right kind of telescope, you can peer straight through to the group of stars at the core of the Milky Way, the galactic center. And these stars really do behave in an odd way, especially uh, like a central star called SO2, which orbits the object Sagittarius A in a pattern of one orbit every 16 years. There are animations of this that are worth looking up. In fact, there's even direct imaging. I don't know, but it might be infrared imaging. But you can like see the stars actually moving over a long time-lapse video. And the path of SO2 looks almost like a... I'm trying to find the right point of comparison. It's sort of like a pendulum or something, you know, where you see something kind of slowly go up to one side and then zoom down along the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what happens with the star. It cruises slowly through a lot of its elliptical path and then whips lightning fast through one end of the ellipse of its orbit. And what's going on there is apparently when SO2 travels 
through the closest part of its orbit with Sagittarius A, about 17 light hours away, it's moving at about 3% of the speed of light, or roughly 30 million kilometers per hour. And that, even if you just look at the animations, you can tell it's super fast. So because we can image the region of Sagittarius A and the objects traveling around Sagittarius A, we can do physics calculations to determine the size and the mass of what this object is. And it turns out that it's more than 4 million times the mass of our sun and appears to be crammed into this very, very tiny region at the center of the galaxy. So it looks very much like a supermassive black hole. All right, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we will jump into more ways that we detect black holes, including gravitational lensing. All right, we're back. Hey, Robert. So what would happen, do you think, if you were looking at something and a black hole passed between you and the thing you were looking at? Ah, well, I think um, on one hand, a lot of people are tempted to th- say, oh, well, you wouldn't be able to see it because the black hole would be in the way. It'd be but, opaque. It'd be like taking a black piece of paper across your field of vision. Right. Just blot it out. But that doesn't quite seem to be the case. Definitely not necessarily. Yeah. yeah. What occurs is something called gravitational lensing. And this occurs when a strong gravitational field bends light around it, creating a lens-like effect, warping and magnifying light coming from the opposite direction uh, of the view. Yeah, so the simplified version of this, I suspect it wouldn't actually work for objects this small, but it's that if you, uh, you know, Robert, you and I stand on opposite ends of the room Mm -hmm. and you put a black hole directly between us, instead of just being completely blotted out, we'll sort of see weird, warped, funhouse mirror versions of each other wrapped around this dark spot in our field of view. We we will be essentially uh, distorted through the lens created by the gravity distortion of the black hole. Yeah, one example of this is frequently um, uh, used is what's known as Einstein's cross. These are four images of the same distant quasar uh, that appear around a foreground galaxy due to strong gravitational lensing. So there's kind of this blur in the center, Mm -hmm. and then the same star is pictured uh, four different places around it. Oh, that's interesting. So you you might think of it that way in our our, our rough uh, example here. I'm looking across the room. I see a basic like blur where you should be, where the black hole is is blocking my view. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps to either side of you, I see distorted versions of Joe. A beautiful image. Yeah, maybe one floating above you as well, kind of like an angelic visitor. Uh, with like kind of crazy uh, warped arms flapping y- yes. around on both sides. Like one of those inflatable uh, doodads you see at a used car uh, <laughs> dealership. Uh, Another example that I came across was that in 2010, the Keck 2 telescope in Hawaii and its NIRC2 instrument observed a foreground quasar causing gravitational lensing of a galaxy in the background behind it. So I think it's actually the reverse of the example you just gave. Mm -hmm. So the quasar is likely to be a giant black hole that's spewing huge amounts of radiation into the universe around it, making it extremely bright. And this foreground quasar is known as SDS J0013 plus 1523. I almost stopped reading there, but, you know, you got to say all the numbers. (laughs) Uh, and it's about 1.6 billion light years from Earth. So this is very, very far away. I included a picture here for us to look at. But you can see how the quasar in the foreground, because of its great gravitational distortion effects, seems to create a lensed image, these distorted side effects of a galaxy that's in the background right behind it. Oh, wow. 
But we should get to the next method because actually I think this is maybe the most interesting and one of the most conclusive methods that we have come up with so far to demonstrate uh, not only the existence of black holes in the universe, but some of the most violent black hole behaviors in the known universe. And that is finally getting to a world where we can observe gravitational waves. That's right. So we already discussed the general relativity concept that mass distorts space-time. Yeah. Uh, As part of this, Einstein also predicted that we'd observe ripples in space-time, gravitational waves caused by some of the more extreme occurrences linked to massive accelerating objects, like like a massive star being hit with God's pool cue. (laughs) What, ripping up the fabric? Yeah, yeah, yeah. or just just the shockwave, the sound, you know, however you want to, you know, interpret it, just the violence of the act. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the funny things, in the last episode we mentioned the English – uh, I guess you might call him a polymath, John Michel, mm-hmm. who was one of the early people to write about the idea of something like a black hole. And a thing that he posited that many people might not have uh, been able to imagine at the time was the idea of ripples going through the earth. The, the earth, the like earthquakes could be caused by shock waves and the earth flexing up and down due to friction events. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard for somebody to imagine how could there be ripples in the ground? The ground is just solid. You know, I see waves in water, but surely not in the ground. Take this the next step. Take this to ripples and waves emanating through the geometry of space-time itself. So what kind of violence would we be talking about here? So obviously God doesn't play pool, so we can't go with the, the pool cue example. As far as you know. As far, well, yeah. So he, he doesn't play it in this universe in a way that we can observe it. Uh, but we can look to other cataclysmic events like supernova and colliding black holes. Yeah. Now, we, we were not able to observe any proof of this until 1974, and that's when uh, astronomers at Arecibo Radio Observatory in Puerto Rico discovered a binary pulsar. And then it wasn't until 2015 that astronomers uh, using the LIGO, that's a Laser Interferometer uh, Gravitational Wave Observatory, actually physically sensed gravitational waves emitted by two colliding black holes nearly 1.3 billion light years away. Billion light years away. Yes. So how could we detect something that far away? Well, the, the the whole setup here is really fascinating because when you when you look at pictures of it, it does not look like a telescope. <laughs> it, uh, they use special detectors in uh, at the time two locations: Washington State and Louisiana. Uh, separated uh, this way across, uh, you know, what, 3,000 kilometers in order to rule out localized distortions. Right. So you wouldn't want to rumble in one place to give you a false positive on gravitational waves. Right. So what these things looked like are are two blind L-shaped detectors with with a four-kilometer long vacuum chambers. Essentially long tubes with lasers uh, shining through them. Right. Uh, c- calibrated to detect like just, just minute uh, motions to measure a motion 10,000 times smaller than an atomic nucleus, uh, the smallest me- measurement ever attempted by science. Whoa. And again, this is calibrated to, um, to observe these oscillations caused by the most violent and cataclysmic events in the universe that are occurring millions or billions of light years away. So – 
both detectors picked up on the black hole uh, emitted gravitational waves at the expected intervals, dancing black holes in another galaxy. Uh, and then the waves stop as the merger becomes absolute, as the two black holes stop dancing and become one. Okay, so you've got this picture created by these two different laser observatories at different parts of the country that something happened very, very far away where suddenly there was this escalating ripple as these black holes kind of swirled into each other and then merged and then boom, nothing. Right. And that's exactly what they expected to find, that the results match simulations and therefore expectations, the basic template for black hole merger. And because they've got these two different stations, they could say with really good confidence that they know this really came from space and what it really is. It wasn't just some kind of local fluke. Yeah, or, you know, like a car driving by with its stereo turned up, right? Uh, no, it's, Jack Burton in his rig. Yeah. Uh, and, and since that time, we've added, uh, there's, they've added a less sensitive Italian telescope into the mix and have observed waves generated by a pair of neutron stars as well in 2017. Now, when you were talking to Brian Green, the physicist at the World Science Festival, and you asked him what the most interesting research frontier and experience experimental physics was today, he named gravitational waves yes. because he basically said that this opens up a whole new way of looking at the universe that we did not have before. And so there are all kinds of surprises we could discover through it. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a, in a weird way, and uh, it, it's almost like we're suddenly able to, to listen to the pulse of, uh, of, of things in the universe that, uh, that were previously silent to us, but that we suspected would be present. I like that. And so that brings us back – that brings us up to 2017. That, that basically brings us up to the present. Now, that's definitely not everything. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting work that's been done in the years in between on black holes, like all the work of Stephen Hawking and everything. But um, Hawking radiation and entropy and information loss and, uh, and stuff. And so I think we – in the next episode, should explore uh, a little bit of the weirder side and outstanding mysteries about black holes, questions that are as yet unsolved or the weirdest thought experiments about black holes. Oh, yes, because that's the, that's the wonderful part, right? Yeah. Black holes began as thought experiments, and thought experiments concerning black holes uh, continue. So black holes already may be the weirdest thing in the universe that's not alive. And in the next episode, we're going to find out what are the weirdest things about them and the biggest mysteries yet unsolved. That's right. And I'm also going to try and rewatch Event Horizon before that episode oh, as well. Uh, prepare for Leatherpunk Spaceship. Yeah. And, and I, can tr I can truly say uh, where we're going, you won't need eyes to see because it's a podcast. You really don't have to to see anything. And because it's a black hole and no light escapes. Exactly. It all fits together. It's a great script, that event horizon. All right. Uh, in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. As always, I urge you, if you want to support this podcast, a great way to do it is to rate and review us wherever you can, especially wherever you actually obtain the podcast. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to uh, let us know a topic you might let us like us to cover in the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.